0: you are listening to the sojourn Montrose podcast for more sermons and content visit sojournmontrose.org here's what we're going to do if you if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks we, we just started last week a new sermon series um, in the book of Colossians and there's a, a, a very um, uh, there's a significant reason as to why we chose to go with Colossians immediately after our life together series so, um, what we were doing sort of the, the previous four weeks before Colossians is we were talking about uh, sort of what we feel like God has called uh, this unique people in this unique place at this unique time to do and to be, right? So we were essentially talking about like uh, our, our vision for this church particularly, like like how has God shaped this family uniquely? Uh, again, unique time, unique people, unique place. Um, and so what are we going to do with that? How are we going to be faithful to what God has called us to do? So it was intensely local, right? Like intensely zeroed in on this particular body of believers. Um, and we wanted to go to Colossians for this reason. Um, in Colossians, you see a sort of a shift, a, de- a development in Paul's understanding of the church, right? Where, where it sort of goes from... Uh, very intensely locally written letters to now a much more general letter still written to the church at Colossae. But this is the first time that you see Paul name the universal church of Christ one body. And so he's getting clued in to the cosmic scope that Jesus' work in the world is accomplishing. And so what we wanted to do is after spending an intense amount of time zeroing in sort of in on what we feel like God has called us to do locally, that we would be reminded that that is just a small, small part of what God is doing in and through His people on a universal, global scale, people of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And so um, that's what we're doing. Uh, And that's why today we'll see that play out, as Paul writes, what I believe to be Um, without hyperbole, one of the most beautiful, one of the most astounding, and one of the most clear statements on the person and the work of Jesus, maybe not only in the New Testament, but in all of the Bible. Um, So let's jump in. And right off the bat, what we need to know is that um, there's, there's a significance to the style in which this is written. In that much of what Paul writes, if you've read Romans or if you've read any of his other smaller epistles to, to these other smaller churches, much of it is very um, sort of argumentative in nature. And I don't mean that in terms of the tone. I mean that in terms of like the way he writes. So he's addressing particular issues. He's addressing particular arguments for or against the faith and for or against what Jesus has done. And so it's very much sort of, sort of more academic in nature. It's a, it's a, It's a philosophical conversation almost in much of what he's written previously. But what we see Paul do here is he's just said a, a prayer of thanksgiving um, over, over the body in Colossae, what he desires that the Lord would do in them, and all of a sudden he just bursts into what really is, structurally speaking, a, a hymn. It's poetic, right? There's something that, that Paul is led into, and he's led into a, a, a time of, of worship just over this, this vision of what Jesus is doing in the world. And so here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things that I'm going to try to boil everything down to in the, in the brief time that we have in this text, although we could probably spend seven weeks just here. Um, we're going to see that Jesus is preeminent in creation. We're going to see that Jesus is preeminent in the church. And we're going to see that Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. And and when we use the word preeminent, you can uh, substitute that maybe with the word supreme or first or above all or authoritative, right? So in all of those spheres, Jesus is supreme, creation, the church, and reconciliation. So let's jump into this idea of Jesus being preeminent in creation. And look at just the first um, couple of verses here. 15 starts like this. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, we don't have a ton of time to, to camp here, but we're seeing um, two, th- or really, three very significant claims that Paul is making about the person and the work of Jesus. And I think what we'll what we'll notice is that um, really throughout this text, and if we just look generally at the way we tend to think about Jesus, Paul is leading us into a, a place of tension, right? Because there's this doctrine that says that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, right? That He is 100% both, not 50-50, not, right? That He is 100% God, 100% man. But if we're honest with ourselves, when we look at Jesus, we tend to default towards one or the other, right? Either we zero in on this idea that He's he's man, and uh, because He's man, He's... Yes, authoritative in a human sense, but that we're still very much reliant, right, upon sort of the, the cosmic God, God the Father, God the Spirit, right, because Jesus has his, this humanity. Or we, we go the other direction where we think He was, Jesus was 100% God, and so He, yes, He had, a, had an earthly body, but He doesn't really understand me, right, because he was, he was still like mostly God, right? So he can't really empathize, he can't really understand my life, and yet what we are going to see here is those two tensions brought together in their fullness. And he starts with, again, just this, the the preeminence of Jesus, the firstness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus when he says that he was the firstborn of all creation, and not that he was created, but that by him all things were created. So, that Jesus is not the first created being, but that Jesus is the first through whom creation has come into being. So, Jesus is at the beginning of creation. He's there in the act of creation, He's the active agent in creation. This is why, uh, in the book of John, the, the gospel that's written, right, we see John begin with not the birth of Jesus, but with in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The preeminence of Jesus in creation, He's there in the beginning. Creation is created by Him, it's created through Him, through His power and through His majesty, through His supremacy. But creation is not only created through Him, it's created through For Him, right? So this is where uh, we can, I think, very faithfully take the terms Alpha and Omega and apply them to Jesus, right? The beginning and the end. That Jesus is the beginning of creation, but He's also the goal of creation, that creation and all that is comprised within it is created for Jesus, that He is the goal for which this universe and everything that is in it, every minuscule molecule for Jesus. But he's not just the beginning and the end, right? What does it go on to tell us in verse 17? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's not just initiating creation. He's not just uh, concluding or climaxing creation, but he is actively right now, holding the creation together by His power, that the coherence of the universe, which we tend to laud as science, is actually to be lauded to the one who is supreme over it, who is right now holding it all together, that What holds the universe together is not an an idea or virtue, but it's a person, and that that person is Jesus. That without Him, right, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei, that gravity would cease to work, that the planets would fail to orbit, that the earth's axis would no longer remain so perfectly placed. This is who Paul says Jesus is, in the fullness of His deity, and yet in the fullness of His humanity in His flesh. And there's there's a word that's repeated in there, and anytime you see a word repeated in the Bible, you should at least make a mental note. But what we should have seen uh, up to this point, just in these few verses, is what? Firstborn of all creation, all things were created. All things were created. All things, all things hold together. What is Paul driving at? He's driving at, again, the the comprehensive nature of who Jesus is. He is supreme. He is preeminent. These are the words that these are the, the, the thread that binds this whole section together, this whole section of, of Scripture. And I think when we introduced the book, I believe Reed did this, but but what we know, right, is that, again, Colossians is written more generally. So normally, Paul is writing to combat specific false teaching. You see that in, in the book of Galatians, where he's addressing a particular people group and their particular false teaching and why it should not be upheld by the church. We don't get those kinds of details here, but we do know that it is written on that occasion. It's written on the occasion of meeting false teaching. And so although Paul is not clear on which precise false teaching he is addressing, it is at least clear to us that the false teaching that is coming into the church at Colossians is a tendency to question Christ's exclusive role in providing spiritual growth, security, His exclusive role in upholding the universe at large. So the false teachers, it appears, right, are arguing from cosmology to spirituality because the universe was filled with spiritual powers of various sorts that ultimate spiritual fullness could only be achieved by taking all of them into consideration. So they see, they see this God of Israel, this Jesus as, as sort of part of it, but that you still have to consider sort of the the valid things that these other spiritual powers, these other gods, these other goddesses might have claim to. And then you will experience fullness, comprehensive nature of life and the universe. And this really isn't a a question that has gone by the wayside or or a problem that only presented itself in Colossians. The modern question of this is essentially stated this way, how can there only be one God? Are we not all headed to the same summit? We just have different paths of getting there. Right, I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of self-help and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of, right? And what Paul is telling us here is that the fullness of life, the fullness of the universe, the fullness of God, the image of God has been made visible in Jesus the Son, that He is comprehensive in that sense. And so here's what that means for us. If Jesus really is God, right, in this kind of way, the only way that He can be God, in the supreme way, then He can't just come into our lives to round them out, right? He's not that, that extra vitamin that's going to make like the, the cocktail just right. He's not a supplement. He can't just make you a little bit better. He can't just be your buddy, right? There is no middle ground here. Jesus is either all or He is nothing. See, to be a Christian is to say, I will give you the supremacy in my life, right? Because you already have it. I will give you supremacy in any area of my life, anything that your word says, anything that your will touches. I will not hinder the supremacy of your will or your word. There's no place in my life that I will point to and say, You can't have that. And this is hard, right? That's why it's hard to hold to what the Bible might have to say on things like sexuality. Or on any other myriad of things that assaults our desire, those areas that we want to be supreme, that we want to identify as the ruler in. And Paul says, No, no, no. If Jesus comes down into our lives, then by necessity, the tectonic shift, the tectonic plates of our lives will shift, they'll move. Because in everything, He is preeminent, supreme. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, it says this, And He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, again, that in everything He might be preeminent. So He's not only preeminent in creation, right? In upholding all things, the beginning of creation, the goal of creation, actively sustaining creation, Lord over all of it but he's preeminent in the church. He is the head of the body. And this is is where Paul gets real wide-angle lens, right? He's not just talking about head of the body in the church at Colossae. He's talking about all Christians in all times, in all places. Jesus is over them all. He is the final authority over the church. And brothers and sisters, this is why every single week we do what? We go to the Scriptures because it's there that the person and the work of Jesus is most clearly revealed to us. You see, the moment that this becomes Marshall's ten tips to a better life is the moment that we have stepped out from underneath the authority of Jesus, out from this body that Jesus is building together. And so is there a sense in which pastors and and preachers and, and these people that God has placed in authority over His church have authority? Absolutely. But it is entirely derived. And the moment at which Christ is betrayed is the moment at which that leadership is revoked. That authority is revoked in place of His. Now, I want to zoom in a little bit on two words um, in verse 18. where it, <laughs> it says this. It says that He's the, the beginning... But He's also the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's two things that that are at play here. Two things that are at play. And we've seen this word firstborn twice now, right? So again, repeated words, we should should keep an eye on those. So it said first that He's the firstborn of creation. That's what it said in verse 15. So uh, when it's talking about that, again, it's talking about authority. It's talking about His supreme authority, His preeminence, His standing over and above all of it. Firstborn was a title that was more about authority, right, and about inheritance. Everything belongs to the firstborn. So we get that he's the firstborn from creation. What does it mean for him to be the firstborn from the dead? Well, we've talked about... um, We've talked about what the church is um, a lot, sort of in previous sermons, and so I have to be brief here, but forgive me. The church, right? What we have essentially posited in sermons past is that the church is the new humanity that is being crafted together, right? Underneath the reign and rule of Jesus. Jesus calls it the kingdom, right? And that we enter the kingdom, right? by humility, by submitting ourselves to the Lord's work, by submitting ourselves to Jesus, right? That we gain entrance into this new people, this new humanity with new rules, with new understandings of our common dignity, of our common heritage, right? A new people. And to those new people, there is a promise that has been given, right? Not just salvation, right? So not just right standing with God, right? Not just forgiveness, not just grace, not just mercy, but also eternal life, right? That, that the death that sin necessitates, we would be alleviated of in being resurrected like Jesus, right? That's baptism, buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. The promise of Jesus is eternal life. And so when it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, what he's saying is, what Paul is saying is, that again, he is the first person to have experienced this new humanity, this resurrection, this new reality in which the gospel of Jesus has been effective, not just for him, but for an entire people. That's why it says he is the beginning you could switch out that word beginning for the word founder, right? And so we've heard that in other verses, that Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's also the perfecter of our faith. So he has initiated this new peoples, but he will also perfect them, right? The firstborn from the dead. Essentially, this is what, Jesus, what Paul is saying about Jesus. He's the new Adam. He's the new people. He's the first one. And he's bringing his people to this place. This is just the beginning, right? So Jesus is preeminent in creation. He's also preeminent in the church. And what that means is that Jesus is what we want to consume here, not preferences or personalities. And I think if we're honest, so much of our church attending or uh, consumption of Christian goods are often ordered around the latter, right? Personalities and preferences. And so here's what I, I we need to what we need to know is that or what we need to be able to do together is to fight to keep Jesus preeminent. And what will happen then is that He will guide us to be the church that He wants us to be rather than the church that we or others think we need to be. And so much like in creation, Jesus is... Not only the beginning of creation, he's not only the goal of creation, he's actively sustaining the creation. The same is true in the church. He's the beginning of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first one to experience the fruits of this new humanity that he has initiated by his blood. But he's also the goal of it. He's also the head of it. And he is actively right now sustaining it and we can trust him to do so. and it's so that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, this is what it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that is in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now let's pause there for a minute and just look at verse 19. There's two huge things here, and again, we just have to kind of blow by them. But first is this. For in Him, right, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice that that is contrasted with what we will see in verse 20, where it says that He made peace by the blood of His cross. His utter divinity, Godness, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Jesus, human blood. Fully God, fully man, right? All of God dwells in Jesus. So Jesus is not one-half. He's not three-quarters, right? He is fully God. And it's in Jesus that this fullness of God is pleased to dwell, right? Now, this is significant on a a number of levels. Um, And again, we're, we're just scratching the surface. But Christ, right? Christ comes and Christ replaces the temple, right? The temple in the Old Testament is the place where God's presence was. That's where God dwelt, right? That's where where you would go to enter into the presence of God. And now, God dwells in Jesus, in His fullness. This is now, Jesus is now, where all that can be known and all that can be experienced of God is to be found. It's in Jesus. That's His dwelling place. And He is pleased to dwell in Him to this end, right? Through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so here's the thing. Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. And here's what I mean by supreme in reconciliation. There are a lot of ways... a lot of lines of thinking that people have had for how to get right with, to be reconciled to right relationship with God. Often it's it's some form of morality, maybe some form of ascetism, right? Meaning withholding things from yourself, right? And yet what Paul is telling us here is that reconciliation comes by one person and one way alone, and that is through Jesus and the peace that He has made by the blood of His cross. And so here's the thing. Christianity is unapologetically exclusive in its truth claims. Unapologetically exclusive. And yet in its invitation is entirely inclusive, and we'll see how that happens in just a couple of verses from now, so I don't want to go too far. But here's what I want to see want us to see as well from this this particular verse. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So again, Paul is trying to illuminate for us the cosmic scope of Jesus' reconciliation. Again, often what we look to Jesus for is that personal relationship with God where we are made right by the blood of his cross. We have peace with Jesus, so we're cool, Right? But Paul's like, look, there are individual individual consequences to what Jesus has come to do. Individual realities. But don't miss the cosmic reality, which is that all things will be reconciled to him, whether on earth or in heaven. And I'm just going to give you one example, and some of it's because I'm a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, and some of it's um, because I think it does make sense of some confusing portions of Scripture. This is what Isaiah chapter 11 says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf all together. What's this picture painting? This is is Isaiah talking about, he's prophesying about Jesus, this one who would come and reconcile all things. And you know what? He's even going to reconcile animal relationships that at one point were predatory, will now become reconciled to one another. That the violence and the sin that our sin brought even into the animal kingdom will be reconciled by God. That we will pet the lion and we'll go, is it safe? And i will say, well, no, it's not safe, but he's good, right? Because he will have been reconciled. What God is doing through the person and work of Jesus is cosmic in scope. It is preeminent. And this peace is accomplished through violence, right? It says that He has made peace by the blood of His cross, right? So the violence is done to Jesus so that we could experience peace. Now, here's what's crazy about all of this. Up to this point, Paul has gone... uh, to to every length possible in human language to display the utter glory, majesty, supremacy of Jesus, His utter, utter authority, His comprehensive authority. And He says, and this is how He wields it. This is how Jesus wields authority, Right, Philippians 2 gives us a, a clearer picture of what I mean by that Right, when it tells us that Jesus didn't consider this preeminence, this majesty, this glory as something to be grasped onto, Right, but that He was willing to become obedient, to take upon Himself the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. That's the That's the leader I want to follow. That's the authority I will gladly sit under. And then in 21 and 22, it says this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is, right? Paul is zooming in, right? Started off broad, wide, cosmic reconciliation, all things, whether in heaven or on earth, will be reconciled together, and then he says, and you, and you, you who were what? You who were once alienated from God, right? So meaning meaning, outside of his presence, a stranger, a foreigner to God's presence, alienated, right? Two, hostile in mind, right? As Romans 1 explains for us, that that we suppress the truth, hostile towards the thinking of God, and third, doing evil deeds. Now, I, I want to pause here just for a brief moment because I love the way this just levels us. Because here's the thing most of us, when we think about the first two, we're kind of like, okay, yeah, like I get that. Theologically, I understand how I was alienated by my sin, and I understand um, that that I used to not think rightly about God. So that makes that makes sense. But then we get to the doing evil deeds and we go, now, now wait a minute, right? Like if we want to look at bad things on a spectrum, right? Like if we've got like, you know, Joseph Coney or Stalin or whatever over here, like I'm much closer to this side than that one, right? And yet there's no, there's no qualifier here. He doesn't say, and some of you. He doesn't say, and the murderers among you. He doesn't say, and the anything, right? He just says, and you, doing evil deeds. And so what we can know is that although we may think we have been basically good, the Bible has a lower threshold for evil than we do. And this is what I think should lead all of us Christians to walk with just a kind of humility and gratitude, just All the time. I mean, this idea of of moral superiority is just, I mean, it it can't jive with this, right? And so when we bring the sinner in, right, all, all we do is recognize in us the same ruin that is in them. And by grace, we have received peace by the blood of His cross. And Jesus intends now to extend that same peace through you. <clears throat> and so here's the, the, the great and the glorious shift, right? So three things that were characterized by before Jesus, alienation, hostile in mind, evil. But then it says, because of the reconciling work of Jesus in his body of flesh by his death, he now presents us what? Holy, blameless, above reproach. And those are three big, fat theological words. And, and again, I don't have time to, to go into them at length, but holy, right? We're, we're set apart for God. So where we were set apart from God in our alienation, now because of Jesus, we're set apart for God as members of His family, as members of this new humanity that Jesus is the beginning of, the firstborn from the dead. We're blameless, right? Right? Meaning that those evil deeds, that rap sheet that used to be there, is now empty. There is nothing there. We are legally clear before God, blameless, and we are above reproach. Which is uh, a, a tie back to the sacrificial system of Israel that you couldn't just give like your your most sick lamb as a sacrifice. You brought the best. Couldn't have blemish. Couldn't have a spot. Couldn't. Have, it needed to be above reproach. And when Jesus comes. To inspect the sacrifice of your life at the end of days, you will be found above reproach, not because of your works, but because we have been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Amazing, right? Amazing. And what's so crazy about all of this is that I think we have the, the culmination of verse 19. Right, where it says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, guess what? Now, because of Jesus, we've been made holy, we've been made blameless, we've been made above reproach, and so now the presence of God by the Spirit is pleased to dwell in us. This is the trajectory of the whole Bible. The presence of God among the peoples in the temple, the presence of God among the peoples in Jesus, now the presence of God in the peoples, by the Spirit, in the church, right? And what is the culmination of all of it? Well, it's this cosmic supreme Jesus reigning and ruling over an entire universe in which His presence dwells fully. And I just love this for so many reasons. Um, and I do want to make this point so, because I think it's just, it so utterly blows out of the water what, what our culture finds virtuous. A virtue for our culture is tolerance, right? Tolerance. Some of us understand that word better than others, but, um, right? Right? What is tolerance? Tolerance is essentially, okay, we may disagree, we may be different. I'm okay with that, at least for now. And so you can exist, and we don't really have to engage, but we can tolerate each other, right? And I think, honestly, some of us look at God in a similar way, like, oh, man, thank, thank you, Jesus, that now God tolerates me because of you. I'm not just despicable in his sight. He he can actually stand to look at me. And yet what I think we're seeing take place in Colossians and what really all of the New Testament is telling us is that where our culture upholds and ends its virtue at tolerance, God moves beyond to love. That God loves us because of what Jesus has accomplished in us; that we're wholly blameless, above reproach. But here's the thing: I think it goes even further than that. I think He goes another step. That God doesn't just love us because He's duty bound to, because of what Jesus has done, but that, but that again, now that we have been made blameless, above reproach, that the that the Spirit of God, that God's presence is pl- Pleased to dwell in us. That God doesn't just love us, but He likes us. Again, because of the comprehensive reconciliation that God has done, not only on a cosmic level through Jesus that is coming to be accomplished, but in a very personal and individual reconciliation that He has accomplished in you. So if nothing else, here's what we should see, I think, from all of this. And that's this. We use this word gospel all the time, this word good news, right? And we like to throw a lot of different things sort of underneath that heading. That's the gospel, that's the gospel, that's the gospel. If nothing else, what we can see from this text is that the gospel is not simply a string of blessings that God gives to us but that it is Jesus Christ given to us with all of the blessings of God contained in Him. Does that make sense? So grace is not just grace. God doesn't just give us grace, this this concept of grace. He gives us a person who is grace. He gives us Jesus. These blessings that God has for us are not impersonalized. They are wrapped up in the person. And so how would Paul have us conclude? And this is, this is our, our final little moment here. Verse 23, if indeed, right, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So what does Paul say? Look at this great and glorious God who is actively, uh, before and at the end of all creation, actively sustaining it. Same with the church, same with your reconciliation. And he's saying, look, put your hope There, where the culture wants to add a little bit of this, a sprinkle of this, a dab of that, like, this is it. The fullness of all that you need is comprehensively found in Christ, so do not shift from that hope. And Paul makes this point grammatically, um, in that there's two words that are super important to this sentence. The first one is continue, and the second one is shifting in that continue is an, an active verb in the in the original greek here right so there's this sense of like okay to continue in the faith means that it's going to require something on my part like that that I don't get to just sort of kick back and all right I can wait until jesus comes back that there's an active nature of it that, there, that there's an involvement on our part that although we don't earn god's favor through those actions that that Living into all that He's called us to do and be is going to take some work on our part. But then that word shift, you see, that's not not an active verb. It's a passive verb. So what's He saying? What He's saying is that the, the moment that we cease to be active, the moment that we cease to recall Christ's supremacy over all things, the moment that that we cease to gather together and remind ourselves of our identity and what God has done and who we are and why nothing that this world has to offer is enough, that the moment that we stop actively engaging in that spiritual battle is the moment that we begin to drift. That drifting isn't a turning away from and actively running away, but that it's a folding of the arms a relaxing a willingness to sort of entreat with the world and so what's he saying if you're not actively pursuing the supreme Jesus in faith you're passively shifting from the glorious hope of the gospel it's a warning now some of you may say we just turned the whole sermon up on its head right Because that sounds really works-based. And there's really no way to helpfully explain this translation in the time that we have together other than to say that the if that Paul uses at the start of the verse is not proposing that their reconciliation is conditional in any way. This is not Paul saying, you've been reconciled, but we'll see. It's not. And I'm going to read uh, just a, a quick other verse from Um, Jude, the letter of Jude, and it's at the very end, and I think it will illuminate for us again what Paul is getting at. It says this in verse 24 of Jude. There's only one chapter. Now to him, meaning Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. You see, Jesus is preeminent not only in the beginning and the end of creation. He's not only preeminent in the beginning and the end of the church. He's not only preeminent in the beginning and in the end of your faith journey. He is actively sustaining all three of those things. And so, brothers and sisters, our hope this morning, our joy is that our rescue from the dominion of darkness is certain and lasting because God accomplished it through none other than Jesus, the preeminent Lord, Sovereign of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we can have knowing that the supreme Jesus has made reconciliation for us, making peace by the blood of His cross. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that we would come with great joy knowing that Jesus, in the fullness of His deity and in the fullness of humanity, was given on our behalf in the breaking of His body, in the shedding of His blood at Calvary so that we might experience peace, so that we might be brought into this kingdom that is ruled by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, under which we will all flourish into eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just simply be captivated by this vision this vision of Jesus as He is, supreme in glory, ultimate in humility. And that we would be given great joy, great confidence, great hope as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.